Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Well, we're continuing today our discussion about the love letters of Jesus. And you find these love letters of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And you might be thinking, oh, wait a minute, what do love letters have to do with a book that's so apocalyptic and so fantastic and so futuristic? Why would Jesus take time to write letters to his churches? And the reason that Jesus has taken time through John to write these letters to these churches is to remind these people who are followers of Jesus that, yes, this great future is coming, but you need to live a life that truly honors Christ today. I need to be first and foremost in your life today, and that's how you prepare for the future, is by surrendering your life to Christ and yielding to his authority today. And we started looking at these letters in uh, last time when we were together, and we looked at the, the first two letters, a letter to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus, and Jesus says to them, really, you've got to love me more than anything else, anyone else. You've got to love me most of all. There's no one more important than me. I'm the most important thing you can do with your life is love me. And the thing is, is if you choose to do that, there will always be people that push it back. There will always be some kind of persecution and opposition. If you really get that fanatical about loving Jesus and are fully devoted to him and love him more than anything else, people will resist that. And that was happening in the city where Jesus sends the second letter to a group of Christians, the city of Smyrna. And he challenges them, just hold on. Yes, you're going through persecution. Yes, you're being opposed because you love me. But hold on, hold on, I'm coming back. Be faithful to me, don't quit, don't bail. Just hold on and don't give up. And that was his message to us as we were looking at those early letters. Love Jesus more than anything else, even if there is a cost, even if it's a high price, you love him anyway. The thing is though, what you and I are experiencing in the world that we live in, We're not being persecuted like many other Christians around the world. We're not receiving pressure from the outside to give in. Rather, the the real stumbling block that's in front of us, the real danger that we're encountering is a, a danger of compromise, that we would give in and water down our loyalty to Jesus. You know, to go along, to get along, to just kind of fit in with the culture, fit in with the environment that we're in, to just make life easier instead of really taking a stand and saying, Jesus, you're more important than anything else. In fact, when we read the third and fourth letter that Jesus writes to the churches, the letter to the church at Pergamum in ancient Asia Minor, and the letter that he writes to the Christians at the church at Thyatira, another Uh, town in ancient Asia Minor writes to those Christians. The message of those two letters, when you put them together, because the letters are very similar. They have very similar problems there, and Jesus is calling the church to deal with them in very similar ways. But when you look at the the message to those two letters from Jesus, what he is trying to say, I believe, is just simply this, is that it's, it's all or nothing when it comes to following me. It's, it's all or nothing if you're gonna follow Jesus. You have to be fully devoted to him, not half-hearted, not Jesus plus something else. It's, it's all Jesus all the time. It's all or nothing if you're gonna follow Jesus. And so that, that is a huge challenge for us because we live in a culture that says, no, 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 no. Don't be so exclusive. Don't be so focused. You need, to, you need to be broad-minded. You need to be pluralistic. You need to be aware of all the things that are going on. You shouldn't just be focused on Jesus alone and say he is the only way and he is the only God and he is the only one worthy of our worship. You can't do that and get along in our culture and and succeed in our culture. And yet the message of Jesus in Revelation chapter two and, and the letter to Pergamum, the letter to Thyatira, Jesus is just simply saying, if you're gonna follow me, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing when it comes to following Jesus. And that's something that you and I need to hear today because even though we're not being persecuted, we're certainly being tempted to compromise and water down our loyalty and devotion to Jesus. So would you take your Bible, please, and let's turn to Revelation chapter two, and uh, we're gonna start reading at verse 12, and we're we're covering a lot of territory, you know, verse-wise, I admit today, 
and there's a lot of important things that we're going to look at, but you know, just put your seatbelt on, grab onto the steering wheel, let's hold on, and it'll be an exciting ride. Uh, but on Reve- in Revelation chapter two, starting at verse 12, this is on page 1029. I encourage you to turn using one of the Bibles from church there in front of you. But uh, let's start reading, okay? Revelation chapter two, verse 12, page 120, 1029, excuse me, 1029. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord, and may we hear what it says. So Thyatira and Pergamum, two cities in ancient Asia Minor, had very similar problems. Both churches had very prominent individuals that were encouraging and teaching falsely the people of the church that they should get involved in idol worship. That's what the eating food offered to idols is all about. It's idol worship. And that they should practice sexual immorality. And the thing is, is that this makes sense in that culture. This is a compromise that would make sense to the average person, the average Joe or Jane living in that church. It would make sense to them because both Pergamum and Thyatira were cultures where idol worship was a very strong part of what was taking place in that community. Pergamum was the seat of imperial power, Roman power there in Asia Minor. The governor of Asia Minor was there, and he had his courts and his palace and such. And Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor that built a temple 
for the worship of Caesar. Now Caesar was the Roman emperor and he was still alive, but they built a temple to worship him, a living man. And they began offering sacrifices to him, praying to him, having festivals and feasts to him and engaging in all sorts of other things that were part of the idol worship of that time, including temple prostitution and such. And as part of all of that going on there, the people said, if you're a good citizen, if you're a true patriot, you will worship at the temple of Caesar. It's Caesar's temple is where we say Caesar is God and he's Savior and we pray to him and we give ourselves to him because we're trusting him and his political party to bless us and protect us and provide for us. It was part of good citizenship that you should worship Caesar in this way. And Jesus, as he describes himself at the introduction of the letter to the church of Pergamum, he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. You remember from Revelation chapter 1, the vision that John has of Jesus. There's Jesus in his glorious white robe and flowing hair and the stars and the lampstands and all this, and there's a big, broad, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, the word of judgment coming out of his mouth. That long sword, that broad sword, that was the symbol of Roman justice. It was the symbol, the right of the sword to execute judgment upon anybody that opposed Rome and opposed what Rome said was right or wrong. Jesus is showing up and as he's writing to this church and challenging this church to remember that in following him, it's all or nothing, there can be no compromise. He's saying, look, I'm the one that has the ultimate authority here. I'm the one who's the governor's authority. I'm the one that holds the governor accountable. I'm the one who has that broad, flaming sword of justice. I'm the one that has that. I have the final say. Not Rome. Not Caesar. I'm God. I'm the Savior. And you can worship no one else, even if the government forces you to do that or demands that you do that. And see, this was all part of just civic goodwill, Uh, It it was all part of being prosperous in business because you wanted people to like you. You wanted to come across as patriotic. You wanted to be faithful in that way. But I want you to notice something else that Jesus says as he introduces himself and then as he talks about the people in Pergamum that he's writing to. Notice what he says there in verse 13. I know where you dwell. Where do they live? They live where Satan's throne is. They live in Satan's neighborhood, in his town. What's the throne that he's talking about? What is Satan's throne? It's the seat of government. You see, you and I need to understand. We should love our country. We should pray for our leaders. We should be good citizens, pay our taxes, love our neighbors, etc. But there are times where patriotism is demon-inspired. There are times when patriotism is a tool of the devil. There are times where patriotism and being a citizen and being part of the culture and community that is pro your government can often be satanically inspired. And we have to be alert to that. We have to understand that Jesus is king and not the government, not the president, not the governor, not the emperor, not anybody in authority in Congress or on the courts. We have to understand that's, that Jesus is God and he is our savior and we surrender to him. And if we give any human authority, any human government the right to rule over our lives in a sense of that we treat them as if they were a God, the one who could give us security, the one who gives us prosperity, the one who guarantees our safety and enjoyment and purpose in life. If we say that this is where we get our meaning and this is what life is all about, just my country, my country, my country, that's, that's wrong. That's of the devil. Again, let me be clear. Do we pay our taxes? Of course. Do we vote? Of course. Do we Obey the laws, of course. Do we pray for and honor and show respect to those in authority? Of course. But beware that we ever turn that civic duty and civic pride 
and that patriotism if we ever turn it into an idol that we worship. Because see, the pressure was on them. Give in to the authorities, honor the, honor the Caesar, go to the Caesar's temple and, and take, that, take that pinch of incense and put it in the, the altar of fire there and offer a prayer to Caesar. Just, just do that. Even if on the inside you don't believe he's God, just go through the motions and do it. Every, no one will know what you really think. Just, just do it, go along to get along. You know, fly the flag, say the pledge, do the things that honor Caesar, do that kind of stuff, and no one will know that Jesus is really your king, and that's okay because then your religion is a private thing. And the challenge is, is if Jesus is king, then our loyalty to him is all or nothing. That's what he demands, and that's what he has the right to. And so he's the one who searches our hearts and knows our works. And he's the one that knows that in those moments when I'm offering that sacrifice and I'm placing my trust and my worship in government and the political powers, when I honor them, even if I'm saying it's just going through the motions and I don't really believe it on the inside, I really do believe it on the inside because I'm doing that because there's another idol underneath it. That idol of Caesar, there's actually an idol that I'm worshiping even lower, deeper. And it's the idol of my security. And it's the idol of my comfort. And it's the idol of my prosperity. And I worship those things and I'll go along to get along so I get all that. Even if it means compromising and not putting Jesus first in my life. These Christians in Pergamum, they were paying a price. They even had somebody in their church by the name of Antipas who died, he was persecuted and he was killed and he was faithful because Jesus was most important to him. It was all or nothing for Antipas when it came to loving Jesus. He gave his full devotion to Jesus and he gave up his life for it because he wouldn't worship Caesar. So we need to recognize that there's a pressure on our lives to give in and make governmental authorities our God. And every political season, that's constantly the message that we're hearing. Vote for this candidate because they'll make your life better. Vote for this candidate, they'll make your life better. You'll be economically prosperous if you vote for them. You will be safe and secure if you vote for them. If you vote for this person, oh, you'll lose everything that you really value and treasure. And the thing is, any one of those leaders can take all of that away at any time. Our safety, our security, our prosperity, our blessing, our peace come from Christ. And we have to trust in him. So Antipas, he was a faithful witness and he lost his life where he, where he lived, right there in Satan's throne. He was ruling, Satan was ruling through the government leaders. But there was a group of people in the church that were teaching a doctrine that just simply said, you can still honor Christ, but you can compromise. You don't have to be so gung-ho in following Jesus. You can you can. You can Give in and externally, outwardly, go along with the community. Worship Caesar. You can do that. And the, the nickname that Jesus gives these leaders, these false teachers, he calls them, there's, there's a guy in your church named Balaam. And, and some of you right away are, are saying, oh, I've heard that name before. Where was that? Oh, yeah, it was in the book of Numbers. Chapter 22, 23, and 24. Some of you remember Balaam because he had the talking, talking donkey that whole episode, yeah, that was a very interesting story. It was a great story as well. Uh, you really wonder who was the donkey, the jackass in that story. It was really Balaam, not the, not the donkey. But the thing that's interesting is that Balaam is a, is a prophet, a seer, and he's asked by the king of Moab, a guy named Balak, to curse the Israelites. Israel has been freed through the Exodus from Egypt, slavery in Egypt, they've marched through the wilderness. They're, they're growing strong in number. They're actually moving around to the east of the Jordan River and they're getting ready to invade the promised land. They're in that, that area. And, and as they're approaching the borders of a, of a country named Moab, the king is alarmed. That's this guy, Balak. And he hires Balaam, the seer, the prophet, to come and put a curse upon Israel. And so Balaam agrees to go along, but God says, you can only say what I tell you to say. And so Balaam gets paid, he goes up on top of the mountain. He, instead of cursing Israel though, he blesses them. 
And there's about 10 different blessings that he gives to them as, as he's prophesying over the people of Israel. God's gonna prosper them. God's gonna make them mate great. They're gonna take over all these lands. They're gonna be victorious over their enemies. And even there's going to be a star that will rise up out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. A great king will rule over all the world. And that's coming through these people down here below. And you can just imagine Balak saying, man, I didn't get my money's worth. I asked you to curse them. You're not cursing them. You're actually blessing them. What are you gonna do? Give me my money back. And the thing is, is Balaam wants his money. So he understands I can't curse Israel, but he thinks about it. And even though it's not written specifically in scripture in the account at that moment, we do read about it in Numbers chapter 31. Moses says, you know, you know that Balaam guy? He got us into big trouble. He couldn't curse us, but instead he taught Balak how to deceive us and lead us into idolatry so that God would judge us. And that's exactly what happened in Numbers chapter 25 because you see Balak, he gets rid of Balaam, but the next scene that you see is that Balak sends all the pretty temple prostitutes from Moab to come and visit the Israelite men and fraternize with them and hook up with them and enjoy being with them and talking about their gods and let's make some alliances and let's, you know, let's, let's form some allegiances in this way and, and, and by the way, I think you're very handsome and, and they, they engage in sexual immorality, they begin forming these relationships and God is infuriated that the people of Israel are committing idolatry and compromising in their allegiance to him because God says don't do that, love me most of all. And God begins judging the people of Israel and it says that 24,000 of the Israelites were judged that way. Balak got what he wanted. But not through Balaam's curse, but through Balaam's deception and plotting, you can lead the people of Israel to fall under God's judgment if you tempt them to fall into idolatry and to commit idolatry against God. Teach them to compromise and God will lower the boom on them. And that's what Balak told him to do, or Balaam told Balak to do. Jesus refers to that episode in this story. And he's saying there's somebody that's teaching this false doctrine that you can lead the people astray for money. And he's saying you can serve Jesus, but you can serve idols also. And if you do that, you'll get along, you'll go along, and life will be good for you but you need to understand that that's a lie of the devil through this false prophet, Balaam. And by the way, some of you may have been wondering, we talked earlier about the false teachers, the Nicolaitans that the Ephesians hated. We read about that earlier in chapter two. The Nicolaitans believed what this guy Balaam was saying, that it's okay to compromise. You don't have to be loyal and true and fully devoted to Jesus. You just add them on to your life. That's called syncretism. And that's the worst mistake that you could ever make is to try add Jesus to other things in your life instead of being fully devoted to him. The issue is in verse 16, Jesus calls on the people of Pergamum to repent, to change course and come back to him. Stop compromising. Stop making these concessions. Stop trying to add Jesus and idolatry and mix them together and come up with your own concoction, your own spiritual goulash. Stop trying to do that. Come back and be fully devoted to Jesus, fully devoted to him and surrender to him in that way. If not, he says, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And the implication is, is that there'll be collateral damage if I come and fight against them, those false teachers. Other people will get hurt in the church too because you've permitted this, you've allowed this, you've even given into it and you need to stand against it and not allow this compromise to spread in your church. It's full devotion to Jesus as king. It's surrendering to him and yielding to him above everything else. The temple was a loyalty test. Are you really truly a good citizen or not? And Jesus is saying, Yes, be a good citizen, but you never can surrender your loyalty and your heart affection to anyone other than me. Your loyalty, your greatest love is me. It's all or nothing in serving me. That's the call that Jesus is making here, and that's what we need to repent to come back to Jesus in that way.
Now he says here in verse 17, he who has an ear, you should listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This message is for us, remember? Not just the people of Pergamum 2,000 years ago, it's for us today as well. And we need to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying through these words to every church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, the one who has their faith in Jesus and perseveres in spite of the persecution, perseveres and doesn't compromise. To the person who overcomes in that way, I'll give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You're saying, what kind of gifts are those? What is he talking about? Hidden manna. What is it? Well, that's what manna is. Manna is a word that literally means, what is it? In ancient Israel, when they were wandering through the desert, they needed food, and God provided bread every morning. It came and landed on the ground. They picked it up, and they could, you know, grind it up. They could cook it. They could fry it. They could do all this kind of stuff, and they ate this bread. Every day, God provided for them, except the Sabbath day when God, the day before, gave them extra. It would spoil if you left it overnight, but there was always fresh bread, fresh manna waiting for you the next day. God told Moses, take some of the manna, collect it, put it in a gold jar and seal it, and take that golden jar and put it inside the Ark of the Covenant, that holy golden box with the angels on top that represented the presence of God there in the holy, holiest of holy place in the temple of God, in the tabernacle of God. Put that jar of that manna and let that be a hidden memorial that reminds you of my faithful, consistent, reliable provision for you. I satisfied your deepest hungers, your deepest needs. I nourished you in this way while you obeyed me wandering through the desert. I took care of you. Hundreds of years later, Jesus had this day where uh, it was lunchtime, everybody was hungry, and instead of sending everybody home, Jesus asked for whatever food the disciples can find, and they get five loaves and some fish. And Jesus miraculously multiplies the bread and the fishes and feeds 5,000 people with this little lunch. The people there were so excited that Jesus had done that they say, Jesus, we want to make you king and chief cook. We want you. We want you to rule over our lives. And if you rule over us, you will take care of us and we will always have all the food that we desperately need. Look what you did with five loaves and two fishes. Imagine if we gave you other food, what you could do. We'll never go hungry. Please be our king. And Jesus says, I'm not interested in being your king right now. He resisted their efforts to try to force him to become king. And as he was talking to them, he was saying, because the issue here is not me providing food that you eat with your mouth. It's rather the food you need in your soul. I am the bread of life. I am the manna that came down from heaven. I am the one that truly can satisfy your deepest needs. Surrender to me. When I'm all and all to you, when I am your king, Every need, every hunger, every thirst in your soul will be met because I'm the bread of heaven. I'm the heavenly manna. Jesus is saying, when you overcome, you get me. I'll satisfy every need you've got, every hunger you have. What about this white stone? In the ancient world, there are a couple of ideas and theories about what the stone represents, and I'll, I'll share two with you, Okay? I, th I think they both make sense and I have trouble deciding which one I really want to hold on to. The, the, the first one I've heard the most often is that if, if you were on trial and the jury was deciding what verdict to render in your case, if you were found guilty, you got a dark colored stone. If you were acquitted or you were found innocent, they would vote by casting a white stone. So the white stone is the idea of acquittal. You're declared innocent. The fact that your name is written on it reminds you that not only have you been found innocent, but you've got this new relationship with Jesus. When you trust in Christ and when you follow him in baptism, do you remember what we say, what Pastor Josh says or I say? We baptize you in the name of the Father. That's one. What was the other one? Son. And what's the third one? Holy Spirit. New name, new ownership, new, new leadership in your life, new possession. You belong to him. 
And, and so that new name, you get that new name that you're a Christian, that you belong to Jesus, that he's ruling over your life, that you're his, his unique possession. You're, endearing, you're endeared to him. And the thing is, is that Jesus says, you're acquitted in your mind. What, what a beautiful gift to receive the person who overcomes. But then, I think this one's even a little better, just an idea, and we're not exactly sure what he's trying to say here. If you were an athlete in the Olympic Games, the, the athletic contests that were very popular there in Asia Minor, in ancient Greece and Rome, if you won the game, they'd give you a white stone, and that white stone was your ticket to go to the banquet that celebrated your victory. It was like a ticket, a pass. And you've, you've gone to a fancy schmancy wedding before, and you know, when, you're, when you show up at the reception hall or you know, the restaurant or wherever it is, the venue where the reception is, you gotta go to the board, you've gotta look or the table, and you've gotta find your name tag, your place name, place marker. And you find that and you find out what table you're supposed to go to and then you go over and you look all over the auditorium and you find, oh, there I am, way back in the back, right there by the speakers with the band, you know, where, where the restrooms are and everybody's rushing by. That's where I'm sitting, okay. You know, so, you know, it's, it's, it's something like that. But you're there, right? You enjoy it. But if you showed up and there's no name there and you would say, to the maitre d', uh, I don't see my name here. And he looks at the roster and he says, well, I'm sorry, monsieur, your name is not on the list. Uh, I'm sorry you cannot come in. So sorry. That stone guaranteed you entrance into the banquet. And I think what Jesus is trying to say here is, when you overcome with me, when you claim my victory and you walk in my victory, yes, I promise you, I will always sustain you with my heavenly bread. I am the bread of life. I will take care of you. It's a picture of that heavenly banquet, messianic banquet that we're looking forward to. And not only that, I give you the pass to go into it. You'll be there and you won't miss it. And your name's on it. No one can take it from you. Because I know you're on the roll and you know you're on the roll and you belong to me. You see, the reason why we can't afford to compromise, you know, we're called to love our country and love our leaders and respect them. We're called to do that, of course. But why we must never worship them is because Jesus is king. He is our king. And when we're called to do something that's contrary to our king, we have to resist. But Jesus says, don't worry, I'm king. I've got this banquet for you. you have, I have your name. You have my name. You belong to me. You are secure forever with me. Now the church of Thyatira had a problem that was very similar to Pergamum. But instead of Balaam leading them astray and encouraging them to engage in worship of idols and sexual immorality, they had a lady in the church who claimed she was a prophetess and her name was Jezebel. And you're right away, you're Heard that name before, too, from somewhere in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's right. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. She was a daughter of the king of Sidon, of the country of Phoenicia, and she worshiped Baal. And when Ahab and Jezebel got married, it was a political marriage, a political alliance. Only Jezebel shows up in, in the northern kingdom of Israel, and she's not content just to worship at her own little chapel to Baal and by herself. She wanted everybody else to worship Baal. She was a Baal evangelist. She was talking about Baal all the time. She, she took money from the, the national treasury and paid for 450 prophets of Baal to go out and evangelize and lead the nation in the worship of Baal. She was trying to turn the hearts of the people of Israel away from serving Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who had brought them into the promised land, the God they had a covenant with. He, she wanted them to break that covenant with Yahweh and begin serving Baal and make a covenant with him and surrender to his authority. Now the context of this false teaching that's going on in this church, this is why it's so dangerous, is because if Pergamum was a place where there was political pressure to commit idolatry and compromise, Thyatira was not a, so much a political set, setting as much as it was an economic setting. 
It was a place where there were many trade guilds. A trade guild is like a, a, an association of craftsmen or women, like a labor union, something like that, a trade association. But, but you can imagine all the bakers having a, a, a guild and all the cloth manufacturers and all the potters and the, the bronze smiths and, and all the different folks that were involved in dyeing cloth or manufacturing different things. They banded together in order to sell their goods at better prices, to be able to get the workers that they needed, to, give, to have influence with the government and in the community and promoting their wares. It was, a, it was an association that helped them prosper in their business. But one of the things that was a catch for a Christian with these trade guilds is that they all had a religious component. They had their patron, patron deity, patron deity that they worshiped and served. And so when they would gather for their, their guild meetings, and they'd talk about their financial plan, their profits and losses, et cetera, their advertising strategy for the new quarter. As they go through all that kind of stuff, there would always be part of the, part of the meeting where there would be the worship of this, this god or goddess that they served, that they were relying on. They would have festivals. They would have feasts. They would engage in temple prostitution as well that were involved in worshiping these different deities. So Jezebel is in the church saying, you don't need to be fully devoted to Jesus. It's not all or nothing with Jesus. No, you got to go along to get along. How are you going to prosper in business? How are you going to succeed in your business? How are you going to turn a profit if you don't give in and be respectable as a religious person that's worshiping these idols? I mean, your business depends on it. And if you think that people don't believe that in our world today, Go to some of the different restaurants and stores and you'll see a statue of a deity sometimes. Maybe it's a Buddha, maybe it's a, maybe it's a Virgin Mary, maybe it's somebody else, maybe it's another person, maybe there's some sort of astrological type of statement or picture on the wall. Some other deity, someone that's venerated as a person of great authority and influence and that it's almost like a worship of that individual. When I was in Vietnam, there were different times I would go into a store or a restaurant and there was like a little shrine actually on the floor and there were sticks of incense burning there in honor of that deity. Maybe it was an ancestor. Maybe it was another deity uh, from, from China or another one of the countries of, of Southeast Asia. But I just want to make sure I'm covering all the bases because I don't want to offend the gods. I don't want to offend them because then that would be bad business for me. And that's a challenge for us today is to understand that Jesus would say to the people of Thyatira and he says to us that really I'm enough. I'm all you need. He says to Pergamum, I'm your king. He says to the people of Thyatira, I'm enough. Jesus is enough. And whether you have the support of the gods doesn't matter if you've got the support of me, the God. It, you don't need Caesar to save you if I'm your savior. Worship me, put me first, and I will take care of you and provide for you and bless you as you work and serve and do it for me. You can honor me that way. He says to the people of Thyatira, as he writes to them, he says, look, I'm the son of God. They claim that the, the son of Zeus, Apollo, that he was the son of God. And he says, nope, 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 nope. I'm the son of God. I'm the, ones that have, I'm the one that has the eyes like a raging fire, torches burning brightly, shining brightly to examine everybody's motives and everybody's heart. I'm the one that has feet like burnished glowing bronze that wherever I walk, I bring my judgment. I know that you're working for me. I know that you're serving me. I can see your faith. I can see your love. I know that you serve and are compassionate in helping other people. And I know that you've endured. You've been patiently enduring and persevering for me. I know that. In fact, your works are even getting better and honor me even more. But, 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 I've got one more thing against you. You let Jezebel rule in your church and teach in your church and lead people astray in your church. In verse 21, he says, I've given Jezebel time to repent. That's a gift. God gives people time to change, to turn away from their sin and turn to him. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she didn't. She refuses to do it. <clears throat> Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed. 
And those who commit adultery with her I will throw onto, into great tribulation unless they also repent. I will strike her children dead. When you read in uh, the book of 2 Kings and you come to chapter nine, you see the end of Jezebel where she finally meets her judgment. There's a, a new king, his name is Jehu. He shows up on the scene and he's kind of purging Israel of idolatry. And Jezebel is cornered and she's standing in the upper story of the palace and she's looking out the window and she's put her makeup on, she's got her royal gowns on, her crown on, she's all dolled up, dressed up, very queenly looking. And as she shouts out the window, Jehu, what have you come to do? And Jehu basically ignores her and says to the people who are standing next to her, he says, who's for me? Who's for me? And there were a couple servants there that indicated they were for her. And he says, throw her down. And they pick her up and they throw her out the window. And when she hits the pavement below, she splatters. She's trampled by horses and dogs come. And when they're finished, there's only a skull, the palms of her hands, and her feet left. They can't even give her a decent burial. That imagery of being thrown down, that's what Jesus is referring to here. It's pretty gross, isn't it? But you know what's really gross is when we compromise. When we give in and we say Jesus is not enough. I need the government to save me. I need my business connections to save me. I need this immorality, this, this, this uh, sexual immorality to make me feel valued and loved and desirable. It's when we idolize these other things. That's really what's disgusting. When we say Jesus is not enough. He says, I'm going to throw her into a, a sick bed. She committed all this adultery, harlotry in a bed. I'm going to throw her back into bed. Only it's a sick bed. I'm going to take all those lovers who committed adultery with her. I'm going to throw them into bed with her. The great tribulation. That final judgment. Maybe not the one that's coming in the future that we read about at the end of Revelation, during the pages of Revelation. But maybe a time of great suffering and turmoil right now. In this, this time. And not only that, he says, I'm going to take her children, the people who really believe what she believes and are fully committed to it, her children, her disciples, I'm going to kill them with death. Again, that sounds awful mean, but they've rejected Jesus. They say, we don't want you. You're not enough. We want something else. And Jesus says, if you reject me, well, what else is there? Who else can save you? The only destiny for you is the second death, and that's what he's referring to. I will strike her children dead. I will kill them with death. Literally is what he says. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the mind and heart and I give each of you according to your works. This is what's wrong with just making these little surfacey compromises about idolatry. You can say, I can just do these external things that people expect me to do, but in my heart I really love Jesus. In my heart I'm really worshiping him and serving him. The thing is, is whatever is in your heart actually comes out in your actions. And that's why Jesus says, I'm going to look at your actions, but I also want you to know I see your mind and I see your heart. I know where your true loyalty is. The reason why you're willing to make these compromises and do these external actions of idolatry, the reason you're willing to do that is because you're really idolizing something else. You may not be worshiping Caesar. You may not be worshiping Diana or Apollo or some other god or goddess that's there in, in the pantheon of the deities of Rome. Maybe you're not worshiping any of these external idols, but there's something underneath here. Your economic prosperity, you think that's where security comes from. You're worshiping sexual immorality because you're not content and you think that you'll only be happy and never be lonely and you'll find true intimacy by breaking your marriage vows because there's your soulmate out there. He or she's waiting for you. You may... You may, you may be thinking that, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go pursue education. I'm going to pursue power. I'm going to pursue these things because you think that that's what gives you security. And that's what gives you peace. And there's no peace except to those who trust in Christ. He's the Prince of Peace. So that's why Jesus is saying all this. I, I'm examining your motives I'm examining your emotions. I'm examining not just your actions and words, but I'm examining even why you do it. Because they reveal what you're really trusting in and who you're really worshiping. Now listen to verse 24, because here's a word of encouragement. To the rest of you in Thyatira, 
who don't hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. That's actually kind of a satanic, or rather a sarcastic statement there. They really claim that they were, these, these are the things that God has really shown me. That's what Jezebel said. God showed me you can make these compromises and it's okay. And, and really what he's trying to say here is no, they're really deep things of Satan. He says, I want you to know that I'm not gonna lay any other burden on you. I'm not asking you to do anything else. But what I am asking you to do is in verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. Now the question is, is what do they have? What was it that got them salvation? What was it that gave them a relationship with, with God? What was it that gave them peace with God? What was it that got them their, their, their forgiveness and acceptance with God? Where, where did that come from? It came from Jesus. They have Jesus. He's the gospel, the good news. They, they have him. And he's just simply saying, just, just hold on to me. Hold on and cling to me. Hold on to me and understand that everything that you're looking for in life to make you happy, to make you successful, to make you peaceful, to give you power and control, all the things that you're looking for to give you that, nothing can give you that except me. Do you have me? Hold on to me. Because I'm in control, you can be safe. Because I'm in charge, you can have peace. Because I own everything, you can have what you need. Because I'm the one that knows you the best and loves you the most. And because I've died for you and risen, from you, risen for you, you can be forgiven and acquitted and received into my family. I give you those things. So hold on to me. The one who conquers and keeps my works until, I, until the end, the one who does these things, holds on to me, keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 2, verses 7, 8, and 9 in that section there. And it's talking about the Messiah coming, the Son of God coming and being given authority and given a rod of iron. And the picture here is you rule them with a rod of iron. It's literally you'll shepherd them and rule over them like a shepherd with a rod of iron. And, and he's talking about a, a shepherd's staff, a wooden club that he would use to fight off predators. And in those days, they would even take pieces of iron and they would wrap it. They would bang it and mold it around the edge of the club just to kind of reinforce it, make it stronger, give it a little weight. And if you really hit a wolf with that, they'd remember it. And he's simply saying... I'm going to give to them the same authority that has been given to me from my Father and they will be victorious with me and will rule over my enemies. They'll rule over the nations and they'll have such authority it'll be like pots that are being smashed by an iron rod. Clay pots broken to bits. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying that those that put their trust in Christ and are committed and devoted to him and understand that he's all or nothing and they surrender to him with everything they've got, they, ha they share that victory. They share that authority. That's our future. You read about that in Revelation 19 and 20, the last great battle. Jesus wins and those who are with him, they win too. They share his authority and victory over the nations. But there's something else he's saying here. It's a little harder to see. Your life and my life without Christ it's just a clay pot, so fragile, so easily broken, so frail. That's us without Christ. And we try to fix that by worshiping these other idols. We think that, well, I know I'm weak and frail, so I need more money so I can get the best health care. And well, I, I, I know nobody likes me, so I want to go look at pornography. I want to go have an affair. I want to do these other things. I'll commit this sexual immorality because then I feel complete and full and satisfied and loved, but not really. I think if I would just make all these promises, even if I know I can't keep them, if I could just say what everybody wants me to say, then they'll like me and I'll have influence and power. My network will grow strong and I'll have influence 
with other people. I need this because my life is so fragile. And Jesus is saying, make me your king. And in your fragility and in your weakness, my power and strength will preserve you. But otherwise, I'm an iron rod smashing a clay pot. Come to me and surrender to me. And then in verse 28, he says, and I will give to him the morning star. You've seen the morning star before, haven't you? You've gotten up early, maybe during the spring, and you looked out, and just before sunrise, you notice that real bright star that's out there just above the horizon. Technically, it's not a star. It's actually the planet Venus. Sometimes you can see it in the evening sky as well. It's the brightest thing out there other than the moon after sunset. And it's not a star, it's actually the planet Venus. And you look at that, and in the ancient world, they would see it, and they called it a star. Jesus says in Revelation 22, I am the bright morning star. That most glorious thing against the dawning of a new day before the sunrise. Jesus is saying that if you are loyal to me and you are fully devoted to me, then I will share my victory with you and my authority with you. And not only that, I share my glory with you. The glory of that beautiful, glorious star. You get me. I'm the manna, but you get me. I'm the one that gives you the access to that manna through the white stone. I'm the one that gives you victory. I'm the, the white, bright, shining star. The glorious star. You get me. You share me. Friends, this is why it's all or nothing with Jesus because nobody else and nothing else can meet our deepest needs. No one else can secure us. No one else can provide for us. No one else can give us peace. No one else can save us. And we live in a culture that is constantly telling us if you just buy one more thing or vote for this person or go to this school and get this degree or have this job or own these possessions or have this kind of family or be this kind of person, then you'll be happy and then you'll be complete. And Jesus is saying to all, and to all of us, he's saying, no, you won't. You need me. That's why there can't be any compromise. It's surrendering to me. It's all or nothing with me. That's what it means to trust in Jesus and be his fully devoted follower. It's all or nothing. There can be no compromise with any idols. And the only way to root out that infestation of idols is to surrender to Jesus and worship him and love him as Lord of all. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? Are you hearing what Jesus says? That's his message for us. Would you pray with me and then we're gonna share the Lord's table together. I'm gonna to ask the servers if you'd go and get ready for that. We'll, we'll ask the blessing on this bread and cup. Father in heaven, I wanna thank you. I wanna thank you for the, the privilege of being in your presence. And I thank you that You've reminded us, Jesus, that uh, you alone can meet our deepest needs and you alone are our God and King. You are enough. And I pray that we would worship you and surrender to you and follow you with everything that we have, that we would hold nothing back because you are the only one who can meet our needs. We ask and pray that you would bless this bread and this cup as we remember Jesus and partake of it together. For We pray these things in his name. Amen.